I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee of Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Eric Liederman, who is Director of Medical Informatics at the Permanente Medical Group and the National Leader of Privacy and Security and IT Infrastructure at the Permanente Federation. Hi, Eric. Hi, I'm glad to be here. We're at the HIM Cybersecurity Forum. So, Eric, we sometimes hear that in healthcare organizations, security teams face pushback from clinicians when it comes to efforts to implement so-called stronger security controls and practices, whether it be multi-factor authentication, zero trust. How much of a challenge is this balance between strong cybersecurity and supporting the needs of the clinicians on the front lines? In my experience, Marianne, the challenge is not so much that clinicians are antagonistic to cybersecurity defense controls, but the way that they're implemented. There are ways of implementing controls that reduce frictions or keep frictions somewhat similar to what they were before and enable the kind of care and uh, systems and access that folks need. The key, in my experience, is that clinicians want to and should be allowed to focus on their patients. And the implementation of intrusive or high-friction controls distract the attention of clinicians from the patients to the system, which is not good for anybody. It uh, creates frustration and burnout for clinicians. It uh, reduces the effectiveness of patient care, especially in clinical medicine where there's already a very large distraction component. You know, clinicians, physicians, and others are constantly receiving messages and communications and various kinds of information about other things going on other than the patient in front of them. And we just need to try to work together. It's a, it's a, a joint effort between uh, clinical leaders, clinical informatists, le informaticist leaders and cybersecurity professionals to figure out how to implement necessary controls in a low friction way that does not increase patient care risk. And there's lots of ways to do that. Any examples? Yeah. So let's take multi-factor authentication as an example. So multi-factor authentication, first off, is something that's well known by folks. People use it to access all kinds of things that are important in their lives, like their financial services websites, for example. So it's, it's not a, a foreign concept. It used to be years ago, but that's not where we are today. And so I, I think that makes it a lot easier in terms of introducing the, the, the topic and even implementing the controls. But how they're done is really critical. So once somebody uses multi-factor authentication once to, for instance, uh, access virtual private network to connect to their healthcare systems network to deliver patient care, how often do they need to re-authenticate? Well, you know, I think that, that that's the area where a lot of discussion with clinical and informaticist leadership is really important. It turns out that people don't want to do it more than once a day, right? So what is, what is a day? How long is a day? Well, it could be eight hours, but more typically for clinicians, it's more like 12 hours because people tend to work shifts, even from home. And so, you know, we, we need to understand is that an acceptable risk or not? Who gets to make these decisions? Who accepts the risk? This is, this is sort of a more fundamental policy question that then you apply to things like this. Another example, 
should you allow folks uh, to access their own personal cloud-based email account while they're on-premises at work? Well, it turns out that if you don't let them do it, it's extremely problematic because everybody also has other roles, other hats they're wearing. It might be mom or dad or, you know, other, other things they're doing in their lives where it's really important for them to have access to their own information and they don't want to get home and be faced with 30 emails, you know, two of which they should have responded to six hours before. Maybe it's from, you know, their kid's teacher or something like that, right? Or maybe it was the mortgage company trying to reach them. So how do you do that safely? Because after all, if you just provide unfettered access to uh, personal email accounts, then how do you manage phishing risk? It, it's just unmanageable. Well, you know, what, what we've done in my organization is we allow people to access these things in a container, right? A completely secure container. So they can access their emails, they can read their emails, they can respond to their emails, but they can't download anything. And what we tell these, all of our folks is, if there's an attachment that you need, forward that email to your corporate email address where it will undergo security inspection by our systems, and then you'll have it as long as it's safe. So, Eric, any other suggestions for how healthcare CISOs and the leaders of clinical teams can better collaborate and communicate for the benefit of more secure environments that don't hinder the work of clinicians? Well, you know, I, I think the more, most fundamental thing is to have structured and unstructured relationships and conversations between uh, cyber and risk professionals com and compliance folks, for that matter, and clinical and clinical informaticist leaders. Uh, because when people talk, creativity can happen. And it's really important that people who have expertise in one area have a chance to share concerns and ideas with people who have expertise in other areas. Nobody sees it all. Nobody understands it all. I greatly value the deep expertise of my cybersecurity professional colleagues, and I think that they've come to understand that the deep expertise that I have and my other clinical and clinical informaticist colleagues have is extremely valuable and important to their work. And so I helped set up many, many years ago, and we have running robustly in my organization, is a multi-layered structured governance around uh, cybersecurity and privacy and security in general, from the highest levels of the organization at a sponsorship and strategy level to a steering committee, which is really sort of a level down and broader and is involved with understanding how the rubber hits the road to subcommittees of that that are more specific, like, for instance, a countermeasures committee where the cyber folks can say, we have a new emerging threat and we want to address it and here's how we want to address it. And I can tell you that that committee has been invaluable because not a single proposal that came into that committee left that committee approved in the same shape it was when it came in. It was, there were changes made and information gathered and what came out was just as effective as the original proposal but with little to no frictions. And that's something that can't happen without those structured discussions. But you also need unstructured relationships and conversations so that somebody can pick up the phone, as it were, or you know, message somebody right now 
because there's an issue, a question, a crisis, and they need to get a perspective immediately. That can only happen with existing relationships. It can't happen if you've never met the person before or maybe once in passing. It has to be an ongoing set of conversations. So, Eric, any promising emerging areas of security technology that you think could make a big impact on improving data security and privacy in healthcare without creating a lot of new obstacles for clinical care staff? Yeah, so I, I think zero trust is a, is a fascinating area where there's a lot of innovation. Zero trust is, is thought of, I think erroneously by many people, as basically hunkering down and saying, we're not trusting anybody or anything. We're going to assume that everybody and everything is an imposter trying to harm us. But that's not what zero trust, that's not the promise of zero trust in my view. Zero trust in my view is taking what used to be a one-size-fits-all approach and using increasingly sophisticated algorithms and artificial intelligence to segment different kinds of transactions or other interactions, electronic interactions, into low, medium, or high-risk buckets, or maybe even more subtly segmented than that, and to treat them differently. The vast majority of interactions and transactions are legitimate. And what a zero trust holds the promise of is to lower frictions for those. Maybe when somebody's coming in from their same home, their same IP address, their same work-issued laptop, the same time of day to access the same applications to deliver patient care, maybe they don't have to use MFA every time. Maybe they can just enter their user ID and password and, and get right on in. And then maybe if that same person is traveling and they're trying to access from another state or another country, then maybe if, if it's considered you know, particularly suspicious, maybe they need to, in addition to getting an MFA prompt, maybe they have to, instead of just approving it, enter a one-time passcode. Or, and then, of course, for very high-risk stuff, you know, we just block it, and if somebody really is legitimate in those circumstances, they can uh, call our, our IT help desk and, and get in. But, you know, this allows us to lower frictions and raise barriers as appropriate. And this is a very exciting area from my perspective. So, Eric, any suggestions on how you can get clinicians to become more involved and more supportive in the day-to-day -day management and oversight of cybersecurity? Well, the first thing I'd say is that the vast majority of our clinicians don't want to do anything of the sort. They rely on you know, certain leaders uh, to do that. Uh, but, you know, some people uh, self-declare their interest, and that's great. You know, when people approach me who particularly incensed or exercised about some issue, that tells me that this is somebody who's paying attention too. And, you know, it may, they may be a potential addition to the conversation and, and to the leadership team. You know, my view is it's always better to have uh, somebody who's uh, objecting in the tent than shooting from the grassy knoll, as it were. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that uh, there has to be respected clinical leadership and clinical informaticist leadership. You know, the, the folks who are supporting the vast majority of our clinicians who are just trying to take care of patients, and that is what we and my colleagues do, it's, it's really critically important, that, that they know that we're there supporting their interests and the interests of our patients and the interests of our healthcare system, and that they, they know us and they, they trust us. So it's, it, there's a multifaceted set of conversations that are needed 
over an extended period of time to make this happen. And the conversations are happening anyway all the time within organizations, and healthcare organizations are no different. This just has to be part of the mix. And Eric, what can organizations do to better prepare clinicians for the sort of outages that we do see? Whether they're ransomware, all of a sudden the systems are down, many organizations sort of struggle, you know, when something happens because then the clinicians might not be able to access their EHRs, their e-prescribing. Is there anything that you think that organizations should do to better prepare clinicians for these sorts of scenarios? What's really fascinating is healthcare wasn't targeted by cyber, malicious cyber actors until about 2015. Uh, prior to that, healthcare was considered sort of a no-go zone. But, you know, starting in 2015 with things like the, the Anthem hack by uh, probably a you know, state actor, I, I think it was probably China, and, and then increasingly uh, cyber gang uh, attacks, turned out that, you know, healthcare is a highly monetizable space, and now we're the number one target. So the first thing is that awareness happens in the news media. You know, our folks, our folks read about these things. But we also, it's really critically important to educate our folks. But in terms of preparedness, it turns out that in working with my disaster preparedness colleagues, it's taken a while to get their heads around this idea of a ransomware attack. So they're fully prepared and they know what to do and they practice for years and they have lots of protocols around no building. Right, so the, the, there's a fire, right, or an earthquake, or no people, like there's a strike or there's riots in the streets, right? But the idea that the building's there, the people are there, but nothing's working, they, they haven't gotten their head around that, right? Except for really short outages, because typically our outages don't last more than minutes or hours, but a ransomware attack lasts weeks or months. And so, you know, the idea that we're going to be back to essentially the same tools we had in 1995, or maybe it's 1895, you know, um, of course with the addition of cell phones, is something that's really hard to wrap your head around, but it's really been interesting working with my disaster preparedness colleagues around this. After a little bit of discussion, they really start to get it, and we've really started to, we've, we've already put in place, you know, substantial protocols that identify for us stuff that we just take for granted normally. Right? So, you know, if in a normal disaster, our systems are up and running, and so everybody knows who's on call for what and how to reach them. But in a ransomware attack, we wouldn't have that information. So we realize we're going to have to have it on paper or on protected PCs or servers somewhere so we can just print it out and make sure our copy machines are full of paper and just, you know, distribute these things. Here's the call list. Here's everybody's cell phone number, for example. We've also come to appreciate that, you know, our lab systems in, in, in any healthcare organization, lab systems are, are incredibly critical to patient care and really need to be ring-fenced and protected because if we lose a lab system, then even if I'll put it the other way. If we, if we still have our lab system, we're on pen and paper everywhere else, we can take care of our patients. But if our lab system goes down, we can't get lab data, then we really can't take care of anybody. And I, I work for a large organization, and, you know, we, we just need to, we've already taken substantial steps to safeguard lab and other critical systems, but identifying them and making sure everybody's on the same page for, for prioritization of protection and res restoration 
is absolutely critical, and we, we've worked hard to do this. It turns out that in the aftermath of a ransomware attack, the person who becomes the CEO of the organization is the CISO. The CISO is in charge of everything. Nobody does anything without the CISO say so. They say, take everything down, everything goes down, because they're trying to you know, stop the uh, spread of an attack, right? When they say it's safe to take the system back up, then and only then will it be brought back up. So the CEO could sit there all he wants, you know, in his big office with a nice view and the big paycheck, but he's not in charge. The CISO is. And the CISO needs to know in what order are we going to restore stuff. And we have to provide, we, the clinical and the operating leaders, need to provide that information at a very granular level to the CISO ahead of an attack. And that's something that we've taken seriously. And finally, Eric, any cybersecurity predictions for healthcare in the year ahead? Well, in terms of threats, I just see the threats continuing to escalate. You know, the threat actors uh, have really gravitated to attacking healthcare because it's so lucrative. And the, the ways that they're, I mean, there's no shame at all, you know, uh, taking out a system and, and potentially killing patients, you know, no shame involved with that. No shame involved with exposing lots of people's medical record information. I mean, look what's happening. Uh, well, I'm not going to call it any specific uh, cases, but there's some recent cases where lots of people, lots of important people's in information has been exposed because a ransom wasn't paid. And we just need to be prepared that the folks who are coming after us don't have any shame. They're in it for the money. And the threat actors keep morphing not only their techniques, but their organizational structure and, and who they are. I mean, there are groups of teenagers out there that are just basically trying to cause havoc uh, successfully, and it's very, very scary. I, I think that, you know, uh, as uh, my CISO uh, has said to me, you know, the challenge that he and his colleagues have is uh, they have to be right 100% of the time, but the threat actor only has to get it right once. And, and this, is, this is a fundamental imbalance that I think we, we're just constantly battling against. And so I think the key is understanding that we're all probably going to get hit, and we need to be as prepared as possible to operate under those circumstances, take care of our patients, and to restore as effectively and efficiently as possible. And I, I think that the idea that it's all about cyber protection, it's all about our cyber professionals on the front lines defending us is, is old thinking, and we have to move away from that. And everybody, this is an all-in approach where we just have to assume that on any given day, we're going to be back to pen and paper. Well, thank you very much, Eric. I've been speaking to Eric Lederman. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for joining us.